0: I've already mentioned, even in our prayer, my my thoughts are on the battlefield today. I love war movies, Um, and I know sometimes those movies can glamorize things that probably don't need to be glamorized, but battlefields in our nation's history and battlefields in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel um, have, have been on my mind all week. There's a fairly new film out. That's about the first African-American naval aviator. His name was Jesse Brown. He was a hero during the Korean War. By anybody's definition, a hero in the Korean War. There's a line from that movie that says, The real battle in all of life is finding people you can count on. Think about that for just a second. The real battle in life is finding people you can count on and it's good as i said earlier and proper that we as a country and we even as as christians pause and remember those who have battled and sacrificed and proven themselves to be people we can count on. And what we have in Samuel what we have in this these chapters before us are battlefield scenes. Chapter 13 and 14 are really one battle. It's it's one scene. It's one Period and one battle during the time of Israel and the Philistines. And even in battlefields that we remember today, those who have sacrificed their lives, we think about men and women who put on a uniform and go to war for a cause that they feel is greater than themselves. They devote themselves to something and they are willing to sacrifice to that end. And we find that in most of the battles that we see here, even in the scriptures. And some of them we don't understand. But what we do figure out pretty quickly, both in today's battles and in the battles we read about here in Samuel, is is this. Character is not so much developed on the battlefield as it is revealed. What I mean by that is, The character of those who go into battle is not always shaped by that particular experience, whether they fail or succeed. But the character is revealed through that in both success and failure. And I was reading, um, some of you are going to be very familiar with this because some of you have probably been there. Our country has a, a, a leadership location located in the mojave desert national training center is what it's called if at fort irwin and i was reading about fort irwin this week reading about the uh, ntc and and one of the things that i read by one of the officers that had come through that he said battlefield leadership is developed long before the battle and he wrote every day is a lesson and as students of our craft he's talking about the craft of warfare As students of our craft, we never stop learning. And the most successful units have learned before they arrive that you must fail in order to learn, but you must never learn to fail. That's good. That's good. And as we read about Saul, much of what we read about Saul takes place on the battlefield. And he is successful, for the most part, on the battlefield. But he also fails. The successes are something that we see with human eyes. The failures are things that the Spirit of God has revealed through the Word that we might not see if we were just looking at it from a historical military standpoint. So Saul knows failure. And tests, like we see Saul facing with the Philistines... ...are revealing his character. And it's wanting. His character is wanting. And the character of a person is always revealed through these kinds of situations. And what we see lacking in Saul's character... ...we begin to see shining out of his son's character... ...that son being Jonathan. And so what's happening in these texts... ...and it's interesting, many commentators that I've... were looking at, almost... ...they just almost skip over completely chapter 14... They see chapter 13 and 14 as one unit and are quick to try to get to chapter 15, which Lord willing we'll get to next week. But I think it's, I think it's not wise for us just to skip over chapter 14, even though it's long and in some ways it seems to be fairly self-evident what's going on there. I think it's good for us to pause and take time to look at it. The Scottish reformer John Knox said, is said to have said, one man with God is always the majority. Whether he said it or not, that's true. In other words, what Knox was saying is that walking with God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the opposition, walking with God will always bring success, as God defines that success. Walking contrary to God and His ways will always bring failure. And that's what we see being played out on these pages in front of us. When someone walks the way Saul is exhibiting, it's, it's becoming clear now this is the way Saul is walking. He's walking in his own wisdom. He's walking with his own self-guided pursuits, being the true north of his compass, and it will lead to failure. Jason showed you that last week. Saul's unlawful sacrifice, his willful rebellion, is what it will be called in chapter 15, has caused him to already be told that this throne that you now occupy will not go to your descendants. And so he's already seen in some ways the cost of his behavior. He's seen the cost of his lack of faith and of his foolishness. And so as Jason said in last week's message, the faith in God is not just believing in a God. It is believing God, believing him and walking with him and trusting him in spite of the circumstances. So that's part of what we see illustrated more in chapter 14. I want to start at the end of the passage. If you'll allow me to. And if you'll look at your sermon notes and just follow that outline there, we're starting at the end because it, again, the chronology in Samuel is not going to be exactly the step by step way that these things unfolded. In many ways, there's going to be a thematic interjection on the part of the writer. There's going to be places where things may not be in the exact order that they happen. And this is what we're going to see here in chapter 14. But I want us to go to the end first. And just see what it says there about this history of Saul and also the heart of Saul. Follow along with me as I read starting in verse 47. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Whenever he turned... Excuse me, wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishbi, and Malchai Shua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimez. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner. Saul's uncle, Kish, was the father of Saul. And Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. So this end of the chapter is a historical summary of what human history would see in Saul's reign. What human history, what a military historian would see as he looked at the big picture of what happened in Saul's life. It's interesting, isn't it, that history lots of times seems to gloss over some of the darker episodes, some of the darker chapters, some of the epochs in people's lives. And in some ways, I think that's part of what we see here. From a human perspective, Saul's time on the throne... Was successful. In many ways he did exactly what God had raised him up to do. Which was to deliver the Israelites out of the hands of their enemies. And so these enemies are listed here. But I would note also that this is what Saul had been called to do. It's what the Lord had called him to do earlier when he received his his calling if you will. When he was anointed. But what we see in Saul is also exactly what Samuel warned would happen when you have a human king remember that he will take he will take he will take your best and samuel warned them that this king that you want will take your sons and that's exactly what this summary in chapter 14 says that he did verse 52 says when saul saw any strong man or any valiant man He attached him to himself, meaning he took him and brought him into the service of the king, into the king's army. So Saul did what God had raised him up to do from a military standpoint. Saul did exactly what Samuel warned the people that he would do. But this also shows us what Saul failed to do. And if we read that it says there that he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them, Chapter 15, which we will see next week, shows us Saul's victory from a military standpoint over the Amalekites. But Saul failed miserably in what God had commanded him to do during that victory. There was success and failure side by side as Saul won the battle and lost massively. Because he failed to do what God told him to do, even as he won. So, Samuel gives us this summary here at the end. And throughout the passage, see, this is what historian would see. This is the military success of Saul. Now, what we have in the rest of Samuel that we have seen and will continue to see over the next several chapters is what God sees. Alright? So, there's a historical summary from human eyes, but there's a spiritual summary... From God's eyes. And what that's going to begin to unfold for us. Is what Jason already touched on last week. And what we will see just continue to be magnified. Is this. That ultimately Saul's downfall will come. Because of Saul's heart. And the character of Saul. Is not developed in these battle scenes. And in these victories. The character of Saul is revealed. And as that character is revealed. His disobedience. His disregard for God's word and God's ways reveals a rebellious heart. God rejects Saul because Saul rejects God. And so that's what we will see unfolding for us. And when confronted with the sin that's the reality we see on the page of God's word, Saul makes excuses. He points to others. There's no repentance. There's huge lessons for us even in that. So so the passage ends with what I want to begin with, which is the historical perspective of Saul's victories, but also the heart of Saul that God sees. Now let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. And I want to read, I'm just going to begin to read a portion of it. Follow along with me. The outline's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. But I think it's important that we see what's taking place on these, uh, in this day, in this battle that has begun earlier, okay? Now the context is this day of battle that began in chapter 13. Jonathan won a victory against the Philistine garrison, and when he won that victory, he woke up Mama Bear. He woke up the Philistines in a sense. And they amassed themselves against the Israelites, striking fear into the heart of every single one of them. And what we end up seeing them do is they go into the caves and into the mountains in hiding. And Saul with them. So, so so, Jonathan, you know, kind of wakes up the bear here, all right? On the day Jonathan, the son of Saul, excuse me, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. So this is taking place up in the hill country of the Holy Land there. If you were looking on a map, and I had a map on a screen and decided, man, we're not going to do a geography lesson because I'm not very good at geography. But if you go to the back of your Bible and look at the map and see the River Jordan flowing and, and follow it up north, you'll come to the hill country. And especially if your map shows a topographical kind of contour there, you'll see the mountainous area. And this is where this is unfolding. So there's ridges, there's crags, it's difficult territory. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let us go to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul is staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, or some translations say under the pomegranate tree at Migron. And the people who were with him, who were with Saul, were about six hundred men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side, and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozez, and the name of the other was Sinek. By the way, one of those means sharp or steep, and the other one means slippery. This is not easy ground to cover as an as an infantryman, okay? You're not going to run across this ground. It's difficult terrain. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mikmash Mich- Mich- and the other south in front of Geba. So the Philistines had stationed themselves in a defensible place. All right? They had a good commander, knew where they needed to put the outpost, and that's where they put it. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come over to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a furrow's, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. by the way, I have no idea and no commentator that I've read can tell me how far that is. But it's not much. I mean, they went in there swinging swords, taking no prisoners... And pretty quickly had success. Such success that it says in verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp. In the field and among all the people. The garrison, even all the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. So all of this is going on on the mountain. And it's in sight it seems of Saul and his people who are at Gibeah. And the watchmen in Gibeah have looked out and they see this going on. So it says in verse 16, And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, that's the priest, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Or it's like, oh, forget it. Let's just go. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the old country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Everybody's brave when it's going well, Right. <laughs> So Jonathan leads his armor bearer. What loyalty here? What loyalty he earned even by his heart and by his faith. I mean, this is a man that people wanted to follow. And he goes in trusting God, but not presuming upon God. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Because nothing can hinder God. God's going to do what he's going to do. And he exercises his faith in that regard. So the contest is Jonathan coming up against this garrison, crossing this steep ravine, and basically pulling off a surprise attack because they opened the door and let him in, thinking they were going to defeat him. Come on up here. We'll show you something. And indeed, they saw something. And so Jonathan is successful there. Now the contrast that that, that kind of just leaps off the page to me is here is Jonathan taking action while Saul seems to be taking a break. Jonathan taking action with one man with him and Saul with this party that is with him, 600 men, along with these people that are laid out for us there in this verse 3. What's interesting is Saul's... Reign has been rejected by God. And here's Saul with another group of rejects. And what I mean by that is if we go back and see God's judgment on Eli. Because of Eli's unfaithfulness. And because of the unfaithfulness of Eli's sons. And you remember the birth of a little boy named Ichabod. The glory has departed. So here's one of those descendants, this is the grandson of Eli, wearing the outfit of a priest, but that family's been rejected as priest. So here's Saul, underneath this pomegranate tree, and all of these people are with him, and his son is taking the battle. And it's a contrast that just leaps off the page to me. Another contrast, though, is just in the confidence, Look at the confidence of Jonathan. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. God will accomplish his purposes, Jonathan says. He's seen God do this, and he's going to trust God to do what he's seen him do in the past. And what we see in Saul again and again is that lack of faith, that lack of confidence, that lack of trust. But here is Jonathan, confident in God, and then we see him empowered by God. And there's a, there's just a clear victory here. The conquest just leaps off the pages to us. But notice, it is Jonathan and his armor-bearer fighting, but it is God bringing the victory. God is the one who's stirring the, the Philistines into confusion like He seems to do often. He thunders from heaven and they just lose it. And they turn on each other. And the same thing is happening here. The Philistines are routing the Philistines as God brings confusion into the camp. The Israelites see this going on. They're not really sure what is happening. Are they amassing for battle? Or are they going to strike us again? But they come and see, and then and Saul raises up his army, calls them out, and there they go to battle. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Jonathan knew what was going to happen. Believed what God could do. And that is what happened. And what's amazing, church, is it happened in spite of the unfaithfulness of the one that God had called out to lead Israel. God does not need us. But he does invite us. Empower us. Give us everything necessary for life and godliness, Peter says. But it is him who gets the victory and him who gets the glory. Amen? Jonathan understood this. I would follow Jonathan anywhere. I don't think I'd follow Saul from here to the back door. And that is becoming evident to the very people that he's been called to lead. Look at what I mean. In Jonathan we see faith and we see wisdom. In Saul we see infidelity or lack of faith. And we see foolishness. I'll begin reading in verse 24. The men of Israel, the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So this battle is ongoing, okay? What is happening here is victory, but it's not just being laid in their lap. God is doing a great work, but they have to work hard too. And so the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. Now, the reason they are hard-pressed, you remember earlier in chapter 13, it tells us at the beginning of that they're hard-pressed because of their enemy. Now they're hard-pressed because of their general and because of a foolish thing that he did. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged On my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest. Behold there was honey on the ground. I'm loving this place. All right. I mean as a beekeeper. Right Glenn. We have to work for ours. I mean they've already done the work. But we have to work to get it out. I mean this is a land flowing with milk and honey. Right. It's what God had promised. And literally that seems to be the case. But Saul has given them, a. he's basically said, I'll kill the man who eats before I am avenged. None of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came into the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. All that it were that easy. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the, the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand in his mouth and his eyes became bright. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Saul's calling and Saul's responsibility was to lead. To lead in battle. And to lead the Israelites in victory. And he was to do it according to God's ways and God's purposes. Especially the Philistines. They were a constant source of difficulty. As we will continue to see even until the next king. And so God seems to be bringing great victory, but he's doing it in spite of Saul, at least on this day. And here his foolishness and his and just these rash decisions that he's made and his self-centered motivation is clear for us to see. I will be avenged, he says. There's no mention of God, his calling, God's purposes. I will be avenged before any of you taste any food. A soldier needs to eat, right? And the, And they're tired. They've worked hard. And and they are faint, it says. In fact, it says they are very faint because of this decision to fall. It's a foolish oath. And it flashes back to the beginning of the day because I think what happened here, Saul made this oath at the beginning of the day, even before Jonathan made his trip into that outpost. Because Saul recognized the difficulty. Saul's had a hard time keeping his soldiers with him, right, from chapter 13? That was one of the reasons that he said he transgressed the law of the sacrifice. My people are leaving me. Man, they're scattering like flies. I need to keep them with me. So the way he keeps them is this heavy-handed oath. And so as he makes this oath at the beginning, the consequences of that are played out through the course of the day. And it's a foolish thing. Jonathan said, I'll trust God. People see that confidence, and it garners their loyalty. Saul makes a threat. I'll kill the man that eats. And maybe it's successful. He wins their presence. He does not win their hearts. And Jonathan didn't hear the oath. And all he does is eat a little bit of that honey, the the sugar rush, everything is what he needs to get through the rest of the battle. And I can imagine Jonathan, when he hears what his father has said, just rolls his eyes and goes, how foolish, how stupid. I think that was his response. We'll see later on that he just, he he takes it very lightly in one sense when, when he's confronted by his dad. There's a foolish oath. There's unintended consequences because of that oath. Look at what happens in verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aejon, And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And now Saul all of a sudden gets spiritual. And he said, You have dealt treacherously roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he had built to the Lord. So what seems to be happening here is some unintended consequences to Saul's foolishness. He's starving his army. And as the army is taking livestock from the enemy, from those they have defeated, and it seems they're slaughtering them there right there on the battlefield and, and eating, trying to gain the strength that they need for the battle. Now the problem for this is not only has Saul brought on them physical difficulty that was unnecessary. He has now instigated among them, if you will, spiritual difficulty. And yeah, it's unintended, but nonetheless it was foolish. These undisciplined actions on the battlefield on the part of this army come from an undisciplined commander. And in their frantic desire to eat... They've killed these animals and just begun to eat them with the blood in them. Well, what's the problem with that? We'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. And God tells Noah that the blood of the animal is the life of that animal. And that blood is sacrificed to me. The life is mine, God is saying. You can have the flesh after the blood has been sacrificed properly. And that's spelled out specifically in the Levitical law in chapter 7. It's clearly written into God's law. They were not to eat meat with blood still in it because the blood represented the life. And that life, that blood, was to be sacrificed to the Lord alone. So the unintended consequence here is that Saul has led his people not only into being famished and weak, but he's led them into spiritual sin. Verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Now, some commentators have made comment there on that verse, on that statement that, okay, we're kind of going back to the judges there. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think this may exemplify or at least voice the people's lack of confidence in Saul. Just whatever, whatever you think. There's not the same enthusiasm that the armor-bearer had given to Jonathan, right? I'll follow you heart and soul. I don't hear heart and soul in this. I don't see it either. But so here Saul says, well, let's go down and plunder them, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. We need to see what the Lord has to say here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day, it says in verse 37. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, excuse me, I lost my place. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel? Though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. You know what you hear there in verses 37 and 38? Crickets. It's silence. Saul doesn't hear from the Lord. And when he asks a question to the people, they're not answering either. What's interesting about that is that earlier in Samuel, he had been told, Samuel had told Saul, he told the people that the Lord will not answer you in that day. There will come a time when God will be silent because of your king and because of the king that you have chosen. And so these unanswered prayers and these unanswering people, Saul sees that things have gone wrong. Somebody's to blame for it, he says. And even there, he intimates that Jonathan is the one to blame. And so what unfolds next is astonishing. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side. I'm in verse 40. You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? Is there guilt in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel? Give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman." So here's this Urim and thuman, this means of decision-making that God uses in the Old Testament. So we're going to basically roll the Urim and thuman. We're going to roll the dice. If it comes up one way, then the blame is on Saul or Jonathan. If it comes up another way, the blame is on the people. Saul's no closer to taking responsibility here than he ever has been. So... They cast the Urim and the Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, and Jonathan was taken. And I kind of wonder what Jonathan's thinking through this whole process. He's standing back here watching his dad, you know, watching this thing unfold in front of him. The lot is cast. Jonathan is called out. And here it says next in verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And I just hear this coming from this boy. I tasted some honey. Kill me. That's basically what I what I see here. I tasted honey. I raised I tasted honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And what Saul says next here is astonishing. It's unmitigated pride, in my opinion. The text doesn't say that, but it seems just to seep out of Saul's words. I will take the life of my own son before I will lose face before these people. I will take the life of my own child before I'll take responsibility for this failure. And Saul said... God God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. It's just amazing to see this man begin to exhibit here what we will begin to see him do more and more and more, which is turn on the people closest to him and literally try to kill them. But what jumps off the page next as we come to the end of this is a unified opposition against Saul and against his decision and unified support for Jonathan. I believe Saul has lost the people's hearts here. He's lost their hearts. He's lost their loyalty. And they are, in essence, giving it to his son, Jonathan. So so Saul says, God do so to me and so much more. You're going to die, boy. (laughs) And then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Saul had invoked the name of God. God do so to me if this boy doesn't pay with his life. The people invoke the name of God. Coming in the defense of Jonathan. And standing up for him and with him against his own father. And Saul relented. He had a rebellion on his hands. And Saul relented. It's just neat to see in my mind. God raising up those that need to be raised up. Even as he puts down the one who has been rejected. This portion ends. Saul went on, went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place and, and the text just kind of ends there as we got into that historical point. So that's the narrative and that's, so what do we take from this battle? What do we take from watching this military leader lead on the field of battle? Both Jonathan and Saul. Well, let me give you three quick points of application. The first one is this, and I've prayed this this morning. we talked about it. We recognize on this day that our freedom as American citizens has come at a high cost. But that is nothing compared to the cost of the freedom that we have from sin's condemnation and slavery to that sin that comes from our champion, our warrior, King Jesus. Come to him today if you've not. Come to him. Whether you recognize it or not, the character of Saul that is so weak and frail and self-centered is the character of Gerald. It's the character of all of us apart from Christ. And Jesus comes to free us from that slavery to that lost, broken character. He comes to free us from the condemnation that we deserve because of that sin. And He comes to give us His life and His righteousness There's so much in this passage in Samuel that we'll see that points us to Jesus. And one of those things is just that faith and confidence in God as Christ exhibited that on His way to the cross. And Jesus is our victor. Put your faith and trust in Him. Secondly, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't be foolish. That word is used over and over to describe Saul. And let me just... Unpack that for just a second. Just unpack it a little bit. Psalm 14.1 tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's not just talking about the avowed atheist who philosophically has made the decision that he's not going to believe in God. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. I love what one commentator said. Here's what he wrote in regard to that. He said, no doubt such a person as that about atheist is included, but the psalm speaks of all who live as though there is no God. Who says in his heart, there is no God. And what he says in that is that to disobey God's commands, to walk contrary to God's ways, is to practically say he doesn't exist. It is to practically say... I am God. I'll make my decisions. I'll do what's best to me, not him or it or the man upstairs or whatever. Don't be a fool. Foolishness in the Bible is defined and depicted in Saul, who made those day-to-day, moment-to-moment decisions that in essence was rejecting God and his ways. Saul is saying in his action and in his self-centeredness, there is no God. I've done that. Church, we all have done that. And we need to stop making excuses like Saul and just own it and repent of it. God, forgive me for acting like you're not there. Forgive me for acting like what I'm deciding right now doesn't involve you. Forgive me for acting like what I need to do right now, even though it may not make sense. And listen, Jonathan's decision to cross those crags and go into that fortress made no sense. At least it seemed unwise, if not stupid. And the world will look at us following Christ and making decisions according to his word instead of the world's way and say, how foolish, how stupid are those people? And that's what walking by faith more often than not looks like. Which leads me to the third application. That's what we're called to, church, is faith. Without faith, the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God. And faith is exhibited in our obedience. It's exhibited in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment, trusting God in spite of the circumstances. God may choose to bring a miracle. He may choose not to. But He is still one. Amen? He is still the victor. How many times have we prayed for that visible intervention? And what we thought that might look like doesn't come. So what's our response? It is to worship our sovereign, good, gracious God. And, and join in the Hebrew brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And say, our God can deliver us from the fire. But even if He chooses not to, we will not bow to your idols. Burn us up if you choose to, King. But He is still God. And He is still ours. And we are still His. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for historically recording for us, but also spiritually recording for us through your Holy Spirit what applies to our hearts and souls. Because we're just like Saul. So Father, we pray for the work of your Spirit through your Word in each of our lives. Father, I pray that if someone in this room has not trusted in Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, as their warrior, as their victor, as their champion, as their Redeemer, as the one who forgives their sins and gives them life, Father, I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ today. And Father, I pray that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, but we have in so many ways and so often sinned by not giving Him the Lordship over every single decision of our lives. God, we just pray that You'll strike our hearts with the reality of that, that there'll be contrition and brokenness there, repentance. And Father, we praise You and thank You for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. We thank You for that grace. Father, help us to be wise. And we know that that wisdom begins with fearing You. So grow that in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.